Good morning, family. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Glad you guys are here. What a great morning to worship the Lord. My uh, brother-in-law, whom I love, is here, so it's kind of a special day for me to get to see him all the way from Canada. You guys, if you would, open up your Bibles to Genesis 32. Genesis 32 is where we're going to spend most of our time. Uh, We're going to be looking at how Jacob approaches the difficult work of reconciling with his estranged brother Esau. So we're going to be talking about reconciliation in our relationships this morning. If you would, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who were following the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray, family. God, we love you. It's an absolute privilege to even be in your presence this morning. And so we want to thank you. and. Father, I feel like Jacob uh, this morning. I'm not worthy of the least of your deeds of love. And I'm so thankful for your love. 
Lord, you say to give honor to those whom honor is due. I just want to thank you, God, for those that work and serve in the military. They sacrifice so much to serve and protect the rest of us. Uh, Lord, would you bless them and their families today? And God, we acknowledge that it's ultimately you, O oh God. It's you who are our protection in life and in death. You are our rock and our high tower that we can hide in. Please humble us today that we might hear from you, O oh God, and live. Make our hearts soft and make your words sweet. Change us in Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever seen someone again that you had a falling out with? And like you saw them again face to face, right? Maybe, maybe this was a spouse or it was a sibling. It was a, it was a church member. Maybe it was a family member or an old friend that you had known for a long time. You, you wronged them. You offended them, and you had to meet them again. Maybe you lost your temper, and you said something that you, you never should have said. Maybe uh, you did some things that you cannot take back. You can't unring that bell that you rang. But now you have to see them again because of a wedding, because of a funeral of a mutual person that has died that you loved, or maybe, maybe it was a, it's a holiday, it's a family holiday, and it's bringing you back into the same house, in the same building or room with that person. What would be going through your mind as you pulled into the parking lot and you began that agonizing walk into that room where you knew you were going to see them again? What would be going through your mind? I mean, would you, would you hope that maybe you wouldn't have to actually meet up with that person? Uh, maybe you're thinking, you know, maybe they couldn't get off work. Maybe, they, maybe their flight got canceled. Like, maybe they're not going to show up. You know, and I could say I was here, but they weren't. And what's going through your mind? What if you just got news? Someone came in the room, you just got news, and they said, you know what? Their flight's right on time. They are on their way. They will be there. And the reality smacks you right between the eyes that you are definitely going to see them again face to face. You are definitely going to have to talk about what happened between the two of you. What's going through your mind right now? What would you do? Some of you can kind of relate to this. Are you guys feeling something? You can relate to this. Here's my question. Would you face them and you, would you try the work of reconciliation with them at that time? Or would you try to avoid them in the crowd and escape when you got your first chance to escape? Well, in our story today, God has sent Jacob home after separating with Uncle Laban. If you remember that last week, they, they parted ways. Jacob is met with the angels of God on his way back home and declares God's with him. That, actually, we kind of read over that, but that's kind of important. There, God is saying, I'm here. Like I said at Bethel, I'm with you. And so God's doing some work here now. He's present in his life like he said he would be. So Jacob understands this spiritual encounter to mean that God is instructing him to engage in the difficult work of reconciliation with his estranged brother. All reconciliation is a spiritual work. Because all rec reconciliation is the signature work of God Almighty. Let me say it again. 
all reconciliation is a spiritual work because all reconciliation is the signature work of God Almighty. It is what He does. It's what he does. He repairs what sin has broken ever since chapter 3 in Genesis. And he calls you and I, as believers, as followers in him, he calls you and I to be agents in the work of reconciliation, to partner and participate in the work that he is doing in the world. So here's my question. Why do we avoid that work? If that's what he's called us to do, why do you and I avoid that work? And we do, can we be honest, we avoid that, right? We don't like that. I think one of the reasons is that we avoid reconciling with someone that we've wronged is because we're afraid. We're, We're afraid, to be more specific, of being exposed to the wrath of that person that we've offended. See, in order for true reconciliation to happen between two estranged parties, there eventually has to be a face-to-face meeting. You can't text that in, right? You can't email reconciliation. At some point, there will be a face-to-face meeting with that person, and deep down inside, we know that. And the big question in our minds is, will they receive me back, or will they kill me for what I did to them? not to put too fine a point on it. In other words, will I be accepted or will I feel their wrath before I enter into this scenario with them? So the big question for us today is how do we approach the hard work of reconciliation? If that's what God has called you and I as believers to participate in his signature work of reconciliation, how do you and I, how are we to approach that work before we get into the work? That's the question we want to answer today. And I want to say right off the bat that first we need to recognize that reconciliation is a very complicated and is a multi-layered process. So I don't want you to think like this is like telling everything that there is about it, okay? There's more to it than this. I just want to simply pull two principles from this passage on how we approach the work of reconciliation. Prayers of humble confidence and acts of restoration. Prayers of humble confidence and acts of restoration. So first of all, let's talk about prayers of humble confidence. So here's where we're at in the story. Jacob is about to meet his brother Esau, his older brother Esau. The last time that they saw each other was 20 years ago, right? So just kind of imagine going back to your like 20-year high school reunion or something, right? Lots happened since then. What's going to go on when I walk into that room, when I see them face to face? Well, last time we checked, Jacob had cheated Esau out of Esau's birthright, right? And he had flat out stolen his blessing from him. The last thing that he heard about Esau was that he was literally planning on murdering his brother, which apparently in Genesis, brothers are wont to do from time to time. So and now Jacob finds out that Esau is actually on his way to meet him. So, he, so just visualize this. God says, Jacob, go back to home, go back to your brother, and G- Esau hears about it and goes, oh, I'm not waiting. This is, this is, there's the convergence that's about to happen, right? Are you picturing this? Are you feeling some of the stress and the tension? Esau's about to meet him. Oh, by the way, with 400 men. 
Now, if you remember from last week, Jacob just parted ways with his uncle Laban, right? Who rode out to meet him with a horde of men on horseback to do him harm, not to give him hugs and kisses and say goodbye. He was kind of mad. Remember that? So this has got to be ringing some alarm bells in Jacob, justifiably ringing some alarm bells in his head right now. It's a good bet that Esau is coming to kill his little brother. I mean, he's got to be thinking, like, is this going to be Cain and Abel all over again? I mean, he surely has heard about that story of Cain and Abel. Is this going to be that all over again? What's going to happen here? But here's the deal. Unlike his situation with Uncle Laban, Jacob knows he's about to experience the wrath of Esau, and he knows he deserves it. He didn't deserve what Laban did, but he's, he deserves what he's about ready to get from brother Esau, and he knows it. Wrath is righteous anger against a genuine injustice. Esau has every right to be wrathful towards Jacob. Jacob deserves to feel the force of his wrath, and it genuinely scares him, and it should. Because Jacob cannot, he knows, he cannot hide behind anything. He can't hide behind any kind of justification for how he treated his brother. Like, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. There's nothing that's going to protect him from that. He's going to have to take whatever comes his way. And he knows that. And it's dawning on him. Probably didn't sleep much that night. So the question is, is Jacob going to run away like he did before 20 years ago to escape this? Is he going to run away? He's got some choices to make. See, if he does run away, he disobeys God. But if he steps into this, if he works to repair his relationship with his brother, he will be exposed to the wrath of Esau. What's he going to do? He's between Esau and a hard place, right? And he's got a choice to make. And both of them are not, remember, he's changed. Both of those are not savory to him. You ever been in that situation? Can you relate at all to this? I mean, this, this could be written a, written a week ago for some of us. Isn't the Bible so relevant to our life? Facts. Jacob is a different man. Fact. He has repented of all of his sins. He's acknowledged them. He has turned away from his sins. He's seeking the living God. He lives with integrity now. He keeps his word now. He's been blessed by God's grace. It has significantly transformed his life. Not perfectly, but definitely significantly transformed his life. But he can't explain any of that to Esau if he shoots him on sight. That doesn't, he doesn't get to say any of that, right? How is he going to approach this hard work of reconciliation? Well, he prays to God with humble confidence. He prays to God with humble confidence. Let's go to the text here. Genesis 32, verse 9 through 12 so we're going to go through this. Don't zone out. Stay with me as we go through. I've highlighted a few of these words. I want you to see these things. I want them to pop for you, okay? And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. See how he's approaching the Lord in prayer? I am not worthy. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me 
from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said to me, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the sea which cannot be numbered for a multitude. And there's much that we can learn from this prayer of Jacob and how you and I are to approach the hard work of reconciliation. The first is just the fact that Jacob prays at all. Before he does anything with his brother, I mean, he prays. He goes to his knees before the Lord in prayer. And I don't for a second think that this was like a one-off prayer. I think he was up praying all night long. What else would he be doing? Not sleeping. Through prayer, through prayer, Jacob acknowledges that God is bringing about the situation. Did you catch that? And he wants God's involvement in the situation. Verse 9, he says, you said return to your country and your uh, family. Jacob is basically saying, look, God, I acknowledge that your sovereign hand is bringing about this conflict and bringing this conflict to the surface. You are bringing it about. So be involved in what you're bringing about. Be involved in what you're bringing about. Brothers and sisters, before we engage in the very difficult work of reconciliation, we must adopt the perspective that God has sufficiently good reasons for bringing this conflict to our doorstep. We gotta know that. We gotta believe that. Or we won't get very far. That God is at work in the dispute or the conflict for our good and for his glory at the same time. Praying helps us, like nothing else, adopt this God-word perspective towards the conflict we find ourselves in. Ken Sandy, I don't know if any of you guys know who Ken Sandy is. Ken Sandy, he's the founder of Peacemakers, Peacemaker Ministry. In his landmark book by the same name, he says this, quote, If you do not trust God... You will inevitably place your trust in yourself or in another person. Like maybe how they will react, right? Which ultimately leads to grief. That's a win-lose scenario, right? He goes on to say this. On the other hand, if you believe that God is sovereign and that he will never allow anything into your life unless it can be used for good, you will see conflict not as accidents, but opportunities. This kind of trust glorifies God and it inspires the faithfulness needed for effective peacemaking, close quote. Do you see that Godward perspective he's talking about? This comes through speaking with the Lord. Reconciliation is ultimately spiritual work because repairing relationships is God's signature work. So we must, we must enter into it with the spiritual tool of prayer. Ask God to help you see the situation as a sovereign assignment from him in which he will be involved. 
How, how would your fear, how would the things you're doubting right now in that scenario, how would that be alleviated if we adopted that perspective? I think it would be alleviated significantly. That happens through praying and asking him to be involved in what you're bringing about. Thank you for this opportunity for restoration. The second we can learn from this prayer that Jacob confesses his hopelessness, uh, the hopelessness of the situation apart from God. Jacob says, if, if you look back, verse 11, he says, deliver me from Esau for I fear him. Jacob is confessing to the Lord that he needs God's divine help. I need you in this, God. He's saying, God, if you do not intervene in this meeting that's about to happen with my brother, I have no hope of surviving it. It can only go sideways if you, oh God, are not in this meeting. Intervene. And hasn't God been intervening and interrupting and interjecting in Jacob's life all along like he promised he would? There is a tone of desperateness to his prayer. Can you hear it? He's confessing, I'm not self-sufficient, said the formerly self-sufficient Jacob. I'm not sufficient for this work of reconciliation. I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't do this on my own. He's admitting, I'm afraid. Because I'm not sure of the results. It's a total coin toss of how, if it's 50-50 at this point, at best. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to enter into the hard work of reconciliation with someone that we've offended, which God calls us to do, there's got to be a posture of desperateness to our prayers. It's not some perfunctory thing of, okay, God, before I go, please be with us, amen. Okay, now I'm gonna put my plan together. You're not feeling it enough. You don't know how hard the work is. You just don't know how hard the work is and that's how it is for you. We've got to see the impossibleness, the hopelessness of the situation apart from God for us to be in the right frame of mind to do this. Does this make sense, guys? We must confess through prayer and I don't think it's a one-time, one-off prayer. I think we pray before and during while we're talking and after. We must confess through prayer that there is no other place from which we can receive help but God alone. We pray like this, God, I'm liable to say the wrong words and blow this thing up in the first 30 seconds because I know me and I got some opinions about what happened too. God, I'm liable to do the wrong thing. I'm liable to lose my patience, get defensive when they open their mouth, refuse to listen to what they have to say, or become emotional if I were to rely on my own power. There's a hundred traps that are laid before me to sabotage your good work. I desperately need you to help me, and I need you now. Christians, we gotta pray like this. This is so instructive to us. It is such good medicine. Thirdly here, we need to see in this that we pray with what some have called a rightless assertiveness. A rightless assertiveness. In our culture, we only know how to assert our rights, flex our rights to get what we need. 
something about our culture. We only know how to stand on our goodness, our dignity, our worthiness to, in order to demand what we need in a given situation. So give me my right. You have a duty. duty impl- the flip side of duty is rights. Those are two sides of the same coin. They infer one another. But I want you to look at this. Jacob is doing something here that's utterly remarkable, and I don't want us to miss this. He is, get this, he's demanding something from God that he does not deserve in any way, and he's standing on the basis of who God is in order to get it, not on who Jacob is in order to get it. This is, this is mind-blowing. This will scramble your categories up. So check this out. Verse 10, we go back. Jacob says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love that you have shown me. So he's saying, I don't admit, I admit this freely. I don't deserve your help, God, in any shape, form, or fashion. I accept that about me without any argument. I don't deserve your love or your help. That's the humble part of the prayer, okay? Then you go to verse 12. Jacob says, but you said, (laughs) but you said, I will surely do you good. That's the confident part of the prayer. That's the assertive part of the prayer. Jacob, get this guys, Jacob is respectfully wrestling with God, which by the way, he will physically do in a couple of weeks. This is the prelude. It's the prelude of meeting Esau before he meets Esau. It's the prelude of meeting God before he wrestles with God before he wrestles with God. How does he wrestle with God? In prayer. He's wrestling with God through rightless assertiveness. You could call it humble confidence. And this is not the only example of people doing this to the Lord in the scriptures. It's all throughout the scriptures. If you think of the uh, Phoenician woman and Jesus, he calls her a dog and she's like, I'm not taking no for an answer, Jesus. It's rightless assertiveness. We need to learn this category, brothers and sisters, and we need to learn how to pray this way. It's such a resource. It's such a gift. Listen, Jacob is not saying, Jacob is not saying, God, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. See, I'm a new guy. I've been transformed, right? It's not saying that. On the basis of my goodness, on the basis of the trustworthiness of my word, he's saying, give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness and the trustworthiness of your word, Lord. You said you would do good to me. So I'm asking for help on the basis of what you said that came out of your mouth, not not on the basis of me. He does have something to stand on. If he's humble, if he's humble. Guys, listen to this. God has given us his word and he's given us his great promises so that we will make use of them in prayer. They're not just like little trophies and doctrines we subscribe to. Yeah, I believe he'll never leave me and forsake me. No. You take that off the shelf and use it. Like a little baseball. It's not a trophy baseball. You take that thing off and you go play catch with it. That's what we do with the promises of God and the word of God. You promise I will do good to you. I will never leave you. Okay, I'm I'm banking on that. I'm, I'm taking you at your word. So be involved in what you're bringing about. 
as we attempt to repair a broken relationship with someone that we've done harm to, it can feel like an attempt in futility. Amen? Anybody? Can it? This is never going to work. They're hard-headed. I gave them reason to be hard-headed. They're not gonna, they won't even let me pull in the driveway. Like, so what am I doing? Right? It can feel this way. You know that. I know that. I mean, after all, we're to blame. And by the way, why would God even want to help me do this when I'm the one who's to blame? I got no rights. And see, if we stay in that place, brothers and sisters, we are tempted to give up on the work of reconciliation altogether. Do you see how helpful this kind of prayer is? Do you see it's a total gift and resource from the Lord for us to make use of? We quickly agree we don't deserve his help. But we're not asking on the basis of what we deserve. That's off the table. We're asking on the basis of who God is and what he said to us. Hooray! We pray like this, Lord, give me the strength I need to beat my brother or my sister or my spouse. I'm asking you to change their hearts, my heart. Bring forgiveness to this. Bring healing to them and their life for what I've done. Repair what's been damaged in them. And do it for your reputation. Do it for the increase of your glory so that you will get the credit for that, God. Do it because you have told me you are good and you do good. I heard you say that one time and I believe you. So do what you say you will do. Demonstrate your goodness. Demonstrate the trustworthiness of your word in this situation how you see fit. And that's how we can pray. The, old, the saints of old called it supplication. It means making your prayers vigorous. I'm grabbing a hold of you, God. Bless this situation. It's not passive. And eh, whatever your will is, it's what you said. Please do it. You can pray that way. Supplication. That's the technical word for it. Because reconciliation is a spiritual work, prayer is the first and it is the predominant and is the primary means that we use. Nothing happens apart from God's intervention in the situation. But this does not eliminate use of practical means in the work of reconciliation. So let's talk about acts of restoration. Acts of restoration. <clears throat> Jacob, prays that, <clears throat> Jacob prays that God will deliver him from Esau's wrath and make reconciliation possible. And then he acts on those prayers. Isn't that cool? He sends a huge gift, a huge present of over 550 goats, sheep, camel, donkeys, and cattle to his brothers Esau, and he sends them in multiple waves. Probably just to slow him down a little bit, maybe, because <laughs> he's coming this way. But so it'll get maximum impact. It's not a one-off. He's taken a loss. This is, a, this is not like a token gift, okay? This is a big loss he's taken. It's a significant gift. Let's go to the text, verse 17 through 21. So he's talking to the messengers. He strikes the first. When Esau, my brother, I, I just gotta imagine what that must have been doing. To, he, he's naming. Naming is powerful, and he's saying the name of his brother. I, I wonder what that's doing in his heart. Not just say my brother. My brother Esau. 
when he meets you and he asks you, to whom do these belong and where are you going and what are these ahead of you? Who are these ahead of you? Then you shall say this, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed in droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And he shall say, and, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. That word face comes up a lot in the next two chapters. Verse 21, so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. In the original language, it talks about, this is propitiation. I'm, I, hopefully I will wipe his face. Meaning, wipe the anger off his face, okay? There's a wiping away, there's a doing away with the wrath. So it's easy to read this, when we read this, it's easy to read this present as if Jacob is trying to bribe his way out of punishment, right? When you first read that, you're like, okay, he's trying to bribe his way out, right? He's a rich dude, he can afford a little, some cattle and goats. And that's kind of how I read it too at first. The word present is emphasized, if you notice, a lot in these last, whatever, five, six verses. I think it's mentioned like four times. There's a repetition. And in our minds, that sounds like a bribe, especially the environment we live in today. But there's two clues that lead me to believe that this is more of an act of restitution when I look at the present and we look at the message that's attached to it. Okay, so I'm kind of, let's, let's pick this apart a little bit. Jacob intentionally addresses his brother at, uh, Esau as my Lord. Did you catch that? My Lord. You're supposed to address him this way, my Lord, representative of me, as if I'm saying it. And he, he says, and, and I am your servant. He, he acknowledges, that's how he speaks about himself, my servant. He isn't giving a shallow compliment. Those words are particular. They are for something specific. He, uh, this, it's, it's not bribery word, or like, what's the word looking for? Flattery. Like, hey, you're really good looking. You know, hey, you look strong today. That's, that's flattery. Okay? You're smart and I'm dumb. That's not what he's doing. He's not just giving a vain compliment. There's something specific going on here. He is deferring to his brother's, he's deferring to his brother's honor of being firstborn. Now, if you remember, this is exactly what Jacob tricked him out of when Esau sold his birthright to him. The status, the honor, the privilege of being firstborn. Remember? Jacob is specifically repairing his brother to the status which was formerly his before he took it from him. He's trying to repair. Hey, acknowledge, hey, you're firstborn. My Lord, your servant. You, you, there's an honor that should be yours. It's not yours, and it should be yours, Right? Now let's look at the present. He is giving Esau exactly what would have been his if Jacob hadn't stolen it from him, stolen that blessing. Isn't this incredible? Jacob is saying, look, here is what I stole from you. He's tacitly admitting I stole the blessing from you. Why? Here's the fruit of the, bl- fruit of the blessing. 
I'm giving the very thing back to you that I took from you. This is God's blessing that I'm sharing with you. I'm taking a loss so that you will gain what should have been yours. It it is not like just money. They had forms of money. They had precious metals and stuff. That's not what he's doing. He's doing something specific with this gift, this present. These are true acts of restoration because these acts are breach-specific. They're breach-specific. They're not just general acts of kindness. And they go before Jacob to prepare the way for his face-to-face meeting, which he knows is coming soon. He hopes this present will at least give him a hearing with Esau. So here's the takeaway for us. The fact is that it will cost us something to repair a broken relationship especially if we're the primary offender. And you and I need to know that. It will cost you something to reconcile with someone. Saying sorry might be enough for someone to forgive us of our sins. Forgiveness is a part of that. It's not the same thing, though. And sorry might be enough for them to forgive us of our sins, but it is not enough to repair the relationship so that they can accept us again. There's some reparations. There's some re, you know, restoring that has to be done there in that situation. Reconciliation will cost us possibly humbling ourselves to the other person. My Lord, your servant. You're firstborn, I'm secondborn. I didn't forget that. I forgot it. I'm not gonna forget that. It will cost us being exposed to their wrath when we walk in that door to have the face-to-face meeting because all those emotions come back when you smell their cologne and perfume and hear the tone of their voice. All that stuff comes back. You guys know what I'm saying? And so, yeah, you will, it'll cost you being exposed to their wrath. It will co- it'll cost us demonstrating our willingness to repair the relationship and to restore the person that we hurt because we're saying, like, I really want to repair you. I want to restore this. It's a priority. And you know what? Sometimes we need to do that before we even say we're sorry or else the words will ring hollow. I'm taking a loss. So when I say I'm sorry, you know that I really mean it. You know what sorry means? It means sorrow. You sorrow over what you did. We get sorrowful. Listen, this means, means for us look, some examples. If you stole your little brother's vintage Jimi Hendrix album on vinyl, and you hawked it for some cash, it means you replace that exact album as best you can. Not a cheap knockoff. You replace that vintage Jimi Hendrix album no matter what it costs. Then you apologize to him. That's how that is a little example in real life. It means if you sold your mom and dad's house after they passed on and you did not split up the proceeds evenly among the siblings like you should have, then you need to make it right. You need to make it right. Share the inheritance in a way that is above reproach and restores and repairs them to the honor that they deserve and would make your parents proud. If you left work four hours last month but your company went ahead and paid you for the whole time, then you defrauded the company. Make that time up to them. Get that work under your belt. Restitution is a biblical principle we see throughout 
Scripture. And God's pretty specific about the different scenarios of how that works out. It paves, restitution paves the way for restoration in relationships. You can go to Luke 19 if you want a New Testament example. This is great. And Zacchaeus stood. He said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Remember, Zacchaeus was pretty rich, right? The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, this is pretty open season on his war chest. Pretty easy to make a claim. If I defrauded anything of anyone, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. Here's how we know. Brothers and sisters, even when we pray for God's help and offer acts of restoration, we know there is no guarantee that we will be reconciled with that person we've hurt in this life. We know that. That's why Jacob says, perhaps he will accept me. Not all, not all, reconciliation is not possible in all situations. That's okay. But it is a goal. So here's the question. This is where the rubber meets our own. What gives you and I the courage and even the willingness to go through the hard work of reconciliation when the, with another person when we're not even guaranteed of the outcome? Like, what gives us the courage? What really, deep down, will give you the courage to want to do that and the willingness and the readiness to want to do that? We barely want to do it if we're guaranteed that they'll give us, like, take us back, right? But we're not, even, we're not guaranteed that. So what's going to, we got to think deeply about this. What's going to give us the real power? What's going to give us the real courage and the willingness to see this through, to do this? It's this. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's knowing that you and I have been reconciled to God through the gift of Jesus Christ the Lord. You guys see, Jacob sent a present to Esau. It was made up entirely of God's blessings and entirely of God's grace to Jacob, right? And Jacob trusts that this present will go in front of him, it will go before him, and it will wipe away Esau's wrath, and it will make him acceptable to his brother. Many years later, God would send another gift, not for Jacob, but for us. This gift was made up entirely of his blessings and made up entirely of God's grace that would go before us is the gift of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes before you and I as the ultimate and the completely sufficient gift to remove a wrath that is greater than Esau and 400 men. Jesus' death repaired the breach between God and us. It restored what we had broken so that we can live in relationship with the Lord, no longer as enemies, no longer as estranged, but as friends, as family. God didn't just say, come back into my neighborhood, I can tolerate. He said, come into my house, son, daughter. That's some reconciliation of cosmic proportions that you have received and that Chad has received. So you know what? People's wrath may fall on us when we engage in the difficult work of reconciliation. It is true. It's a reality. That might happen to you and I. 
We very well may experience the consequences of our sins. We may not be able to get back with that person in this life. That's right. But here's what soothes our fears. Here's what soothes us, that terrifies us at night and gives us the courage and the willingness to do this work. The fact that the gospel says God's wrath, which is far hotter and greater than any offended brother, any offended spouse, any offended friend, has sufficiently been appeased through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus, we are totally accepted full stop. And we are totally restored to his satisfying love forever in spite of the atrocities we've done against him. He loves us. And we are restored to him. Keeping that truth in the front of our mind will help us do the hard work of reconciliation. And, and that's what we've got to pray because you're going to forget when you walk into that room. So pray before and during. And you might say, hey, hey, it's getting heat. Can we just pray? we got to pray, God, put this in the front of my mind. What The gospel, what you've done for me so I can carry on with this. Thank you. Praise the name of Jesus. Let's pray. God, what a wonderful and humbling word that you have served up for us today and for our church. We love you. We praise your name. We thank you for what you did for us in Jesus Christ and how you reconciled us to yourself. Jesus took your wrath that should have fallen on us and wiped it off your face. As it's the apostle John says in 1 John 4, this is love, not that we have loved you, but you have loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. We thank you that this present has gone before us, this gift has gone before us, and we can follow behind. And I pray for my brothers and sisters and those that are engaged in the difficult work of reconciliation or they are about to be that you would give them the gospel to give them courage to do your signature work in the earth. Lord, would you bring forgiveness? Would you bring peace and appeasement where it needs to be? Would you bring restitution where we can repair what we have stolen or broken? Would you give us humble hearts to do your work in the world? And would you help us understand what you have done for us And because of the gospel, whatever we lose is not really a loss. We have all that we need in you through Christ Jesus. It's in his holy, precious name we pray. Amen.